Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our guest today is Dr. Janice Winchester Nato, and our topic is helping families deal with loss. Dr. Janice Nato is a marriage and family therapist, psychologist, and master's prepared nurse. Over the past 26 years, she has become best known for her work in the field of death, dying, and bereavement. Her roles have included hospice nurse, college uh, faculty lecturer, researcher, and psychotherapist. On an ongoing basis, she experiences what she calls chronic sorrow over the fragile health of her disabled daughter, Cindy. Janice is the author of Families Making Sense of Death and the CD series, Where Do I Go From Here? In 1985, she founded Growing Through Loss, a community-based grief support program that has served thousands in the St. Louis, the St. Paul, Minneapolis area. Welcome to the show, Janice. Thank you. Hi, Janice. It's great to have you on the show. I mean, we could go on for hours. Um, I've been looking at your, read your book, uh, Families Making Sense of Death, and uh, very interesting, your research study. We'll get into that a little bit. But um, I wanted to start out with how you got interested in the area of grief and loss. Well, I, I like to tell people that I started being a grief therapist when I was about five years old. And uh, what I mean by that is that that was the time uh, when my grandfather died, and living in the same house as um, our grandparents meant that I lived with her my whole growing up years. And so Grandma turned to me to talk about what had happened and how much she missed Grandpa, and without knowing it, I developed, I think, some sensitive ears to the plight of widows and all the way through nursing school. That kind of thing drew me and, you know, how it is another. Mm-hmm. And then you've done so much in the field. Well, and we're going to get into that a little later on the show, but I wanted to go right into this email. What's your thought about about that comment about that my parents aren't um, grieving enough or helping me enough, the grandparents? Well, Wendy's, Wendy's comment, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that's just so, we hear that almost every day, I think. Um, in fact, one of the things that I've underlined here as important points to make during this hour is how much we assume that our families are going to be available to us in times of great loss. And it seems as if families should or ought to be, and that's not such an unreasonable expectation. But what we forget, I think, is that every one of those family members is also grieving in their own way. Mm -hmm. And I think it's always a mistake, and particularly for grandparents, to say to their grieving children, children or whatever age, I know how you feel. Right. Because we can't. I think grandparent grief is very different. And as you were saying earlier, um, Gloria, you grieve for both the child that's lost and for your child who's lost their child. And it's a a double grief. Mm -hmm. So that idea that our families will be there for us uh, does shock quite a few people. And yet, when you think about it, it makes sense that they too are, are suffering their own loss Yeah, I think disappointing is kind of the operative word, isn't it? The whole thing is so horrendous, and then we're so disappointed and so sad. And and um, that kind of, I think, moves us into your research, which was on families making sense of death and, and meaning-making. You know, how do families go about um, making sense of death? How does 
how does this family with Wendy um, go about making sense of death? Well, I think, first off, what I'd like to say about making sense is I think when we say making sense of something, we, we automatically assume that that means positive sense. That in other words, somehow we'll be able to find some kind of a positive meaning. Mm-hmm. And that may occur eventually. But it's also true that what's important is exactly how do we think of a particular death at the time that it occurs and thereafter. Uh, what does it mean? Um, and I'll, I'll give an example. If, for instance, someone thinks that um, a death that occurs, whether it's a child or an adult, could have in some way have been prevented, um, the way that they grieve, the mm-hmm. quality of their grief, the way they interact with one another is quite different than if it's somebody who uh, died of natural causes, someone who kind of died and fell asleep in their sleep. And, uh, it's just a very different kind of a reaction. So mm-hmm. the process that really interests me most is just how do family members uh, interactively, when they're together, when they're talking to each other, and these days when they're emailing each other, uh, how do they interact in a way in their effort to attempt to make some kind of sense of it? Mm-hmm. Now, I notice in your study that you, um, all of the people that you did, you did in your study were ages 39 to 91. So you didn't interview any children, uh, lots of children. And I was thinking what a wonderful study it would be to do exactly the same study on families who have lost children. And then compare and contrast the results. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, it would be. Uh, I did talk to some of the, some of the uh, <clears throat> parents of the people who died. So in some sense, they were adult children who died. Right. Uh, but my goal was not to select necessarily um, a particular kind of loss, but rather to find grieving families where groups of people would be willing to be interviewed. Mm-hmm. But that you're right, that would make a wonderful study, and uh, I think it would make some interesting comparisons, especially in terms of what kind of meanings that people tend to attach when it's the death of a child versus when it's a spouse or when it's a parent. Or mm-hmm. I think there's so many variables. And were there themes and patterns you saw as far as how people made meaning um, well, of the loss? Well, I'll tell you, um, I I think of it uh, kind of in a family therapist kind of way, mm-hmm. which is that it is in the actual interaction with one another and in that conversation within the, within the family that people kind of add things to the mix. One person bounces off from another. Uh, someone starts a sentence, someone finishes the and someone will say, I think that I think that such and such happened, and another family member will say, well, I don't agree with you. I think it's, it was like this. This is what it means. And it's in that kind of almost sort of crucible of family interactions that pe- that a family will somehow forge a, um, a meaning. They'll decide what this particular particular death means. So, so kind of that's the... Um that's kind of what we want to happen, right, is to people to get together and be able to forge a meeting. But oftentimes that doesn't happen, right? That's families, right. Families that's don't get together. Mm-hmm. They don't get together. And in some cases, even when they're in the same town, as was the case with one of the families in my book uh, and in my study, they don't, they don't necessarily communicate. And that brings me to the notion that what's important when we're looking at this is what was the state of the family before a death occurred? 
very good point. You can't expect your family, even if you're in therapy or whatever, to all of a sudden come together gloriously when you haven't spoken to each other beforehand. It would be wonderful if that, if that were the case. But, and it is once in a while that people do come together for a short time, and then family members begin to feel the others drifting away. And uh, that's a, a disappointing feeling as the family goes back to a more distant Oh, I like that point, and I want our audience to hear it out there. There, there can be some disappointment. Your family all comes to the funeral; they all support you, and then suddenly it's over, and they're gone, and and you're disappointed. Oh, yes, we hear that, don't we, Heidi? Well, and you're left alone eventually. I mean, even after the loss, like you said, after the funeral, sometimes people will come around for a significant amount of time. It may even be the first year, and then all of a sudden, nobody's there. Right. That's right. Uh, we have a little thing for that. Here in Minnesota, we call it, it's, it's after the casserole caravan has passed. Well, um, I wanted to talk with Janice is just, you know, so well-known in the field of grief and loss. I want you to all know that out there, and uh, it's wonderful to have experts on this show. Um, we're very excited about doing this, aren't we, Heidi? Absolutely, especially someone that's been in the field over the past 26 years and has seen how the field Hopefully it's changed, and maybe she can say something about that over the last 26 years. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wanted to let's start with that, and then, then we'll get into some more things about how to help the families. What is new in grief and loss for our folks out there, or what, what are the changes that you're seeing? Well, one of the changes that I've seen, I certainly have seen from the point of view of, of from a nursing perspective, uh, one of the things that I remember vividly um, when I worked in surgical intensive care in Vermont was exactly what was done with families after someone died. Uh, we would gather their maybe their watch and their wallet and their glasses from the uh, bedside stand, which was about all you could have in an intensive care unit. We would wrap them up in some kind of a bag, sometimes even an old plastic, black plastic bag. We would give those things to the family, and they would leave. And that would be it. That would be the loss of our connection. We had no grief groups in the community to refer them to. My knowledge, compassionate friends was not available, at least not where I was. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, so what's happened now, and particularly in these larger city areas, is there are so many grief resources that it's just staggering. And could we go as far as to say that even the conversation about death, talking about death, talking about losing a family member, being able to say what happened to us in social settings, over dinner, at cocktail parties, I think it's Nothing else, that's one of the things Kula Ross gave us. She made talking about death much more acceptable, socially acceptable practice. And I think mm-hmm. that's made a huge difference. People are not as afraid now to mention it and, or so afraid that if they should happen to cry, that, that would be a terrible, terrible thing. Right. We're getting more comfortable with crying. It's not a t- as much of a taboo subject anymore. You're right. Yeah. And we were talking during the break how great it is to be able to have a show where people can come on and talk about it. And uh, I gave some cards out last night. I went to a meeting for the landmine survivors, and I handed out some cards. Um, and people, all of a sudden, they're like, oh, you know, my uh, brother died. Or, my, you know, all of a sudden, people started, people started telling their stories. Coming out of the woodwork, telling their stories. It was, it was really pretty fascinating. And I, and I think for listeners, people can listen and say, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not crazy. Other people have had the same feelings I have, and other people have been there and made it through it. And I'm going to hold on to that, and that's going to give me strength, and I'm going to get through it. 
Right, exactly. Well, uh, Janice, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about some of the things that our folks can do out there. It's winter time. Uh, we're coming up on the holiday season, and I know one of the things that I thought was really interesting is your idea, thoughts about light. <laughs> well, we, we have to think about light on purpose here in this part of the country, and uh, it's pretty dark now. I think it was about 4.30 yesterday when it was dark. That makes for a very short day. Um, I do a lot with uh, full-spectrum lighting. Uh, there are special lights that people can purchase um, that will, in some ways, kind of, uh, I like to say, keep them from hibernating uh-huh. <laughs> because our urge towards winter is to, you know, eat more carbohydrates, higher carbohydrate diet, to uh, curl up somewhere, you know, and do less. Um, kind of like the bears, huh? Yes, like the bears, exactly, exactly like the bears. And what uh, seems to be helpful not only for people who have that seasonal affective disorder, which is the official name for this mm-hmm. winter depression, it seems to help for other depressions as well. And uh, it's, a bit, it's a matter of getting a lamp and remembering that you need to get 18 to 20 inches away from the lamp. You don't have to look directly in the light, but the light needs to shine on. Now, is it, this is your special weapon. light, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And where do you light. buy the, the lamps? Well, there are many of them. You can find them in, certainly online. Okay. Uh, I um, happen to use uh, a Canadian uh, Canadian company that I order them from, and I can, I can certainly make that available if anybody wants to email me. Do you want to give us the name of the company? That's uh, fine. That name? Uh, well, I was reaching for it right at the end. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have it yet, but maybe after the next day. Okay, after the next we break, we can it. give you the name of the mm-hmm. light. So you're saying, and people get kind of close to it. And, and, and then how many minutes do they have to sit under it? Well, I'm glad you asked that, Heidi, because one of the things that is really important is that people start out with small amounts of time, like maybe five or ten minutes each morning. Sometimes people do it late afternoon but that you gradually build up that length of time and that if anyone starts to feel you know, agitated, more agitated or anxious from being under the light, then they need to back off the amount of time or maybe even reconsider whether or not it's going to be helpful because it isn't the best thing for everyone. But I found I probably have about 10 clients who are using it and it really makes a big difference. We started here in Minnesota fairly soon after Labor Day so that by this point in time, um, uh, we are using it maybe half an hour to 45 minutes in the morning. And it's quite remarkable. I think a lot of people could uh, feel much better. Many could stay off meds. I think it's marvelous for those folks who maybe have a low-level depression and then they have a loss, they lose a child, they're trying to make a marriage work or a partnership work, and it's just uh, really the cold weather and the short days is just one, one thing too many. Yeah, and the light and really helps. Yeah, that's a great idea with the light. And then, do you suggest that people take a little walk, or how do you suggest they eat? Do you have some other suggestions for? Well, them? you know, exercise exercise is the best. There's just nothing really I think it, that could <laughs> help us at sleep and exercise. It's interesting that when we come right down to it, with all our sophisticated ways of helping uh, eating right, eating exercise, sleeping enough, getting enough light. To be the things that really matter. Mm-hmm. And how about alcohol and caffeine? Well, you know that's 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 risky. I think for grieving people. Uh, for one thing, um, the sleep is often disturbed, especially in the early years. And so to have caffeine, that can for some people disturb their sleep enough, so that they really do get sleep deprived. And when we're sleep deprived, lots of other things follow that are not not healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things I found that helps a great deal is to coach my people to 
um, have some protein with their breakfast mm. um, so that not only are they getting more light and hopefully some exercise, even if it's gentle walking, um, that they also have protein. In them and you, a little meat or a little egg? or Yeah, a little cottage cheese. A little cottage uh, cheese. Cheese of, cheese of whatever kind. What Something yogurt, mm-hmm. uh, some, but that they don't go just with a straight carbohydrate diet. You know, I think I think you're hitting about, upon something that I think is really important for our people and for you know for us to give thought to. Grief, uh, an event of loss, particularly early on, is not just a, a mental experience; it's a physical experience also. Yes, and I think we forget we forget that. Um, I think some of us, I, I know that uh, you, Heidi, and uh, other folks in our audience have had training as nurses, and we think more about maybe the health aspects of it all, but we can't separate it out. It's like water in the basement. It doesn't stay in one room. (laughs) (laughs) It seeps throughout our whole life. It affects us in every single way, and I think people are often stunned at the impact that it has. Uh, I always say hearing your child has died, and, you know, even if they've been terminally ill, there's still the moment when they come in and say they're gone. That is like hitting a brick wall going 100 miles an hour, or your sibling, I'm sure, Heidi, the same way. It's definitely a physical assault to the body. Absolutely. People talk about that terrible, tight feeling in their chest and how it feels as if somebody's standing on them and they can't catch their breath. A lot of times it sounds very much as if someone would be having a heart attack. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I have one, one client in particular for many years. She had this kind of knot in her stomach, kind of an empty, twisted, sort of sick feeling. And we really knew that she was making some progress toward building a new life when she started, when that knot started to loosen a bit. Mm-hmm. There was a real physiological sign there for her that she was grieving and that this loss had really impacted everything about her life. So I want to say to our audience out there, we, we know that you're having these experiences. We understand it. We want you to know it's normal. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about your own daughter, Cindy, who's had some issues and uh, some developmental issues. Well, actually, um, Cindy was well um, well until uh, 1989, and this was, uh, she became ill after the birth of uh, her three children. Oh, wow. And uh, so it was a very complicated situation because she was quite ill and, and is quite ill off and on, and still these uh, wonderful grandchildren of mine have to be parented. <laughs> So that presents a lot of, um, you know, a lot of complication. And part of the difficulty, as is true with many um, chronic illnesses and disabilities, things go along pretty well for a while, and then suddenly there's, you know, sick again. And And what does she have? A flu going on. She has a a lung condition. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's called uh, interstitial pulmonary fibrosis. Mm. And she has lost a large portion of her lung. And so that means that she needs to be on oxygen all the time, the breathing machine at night, the scooter, the van, you know, the whole, the whole night. Now, now, has that changed how you um, feel about loss or in your work or um, having your own personal experience? Well, yes, it, it, it certainly makes me a lot more sensitive to at least two things. One is that, for sure, grief is not never over.
any guilt connected with it? Our audience, you know, often talks about feeling guilt that they didn't get people there soon enough, that it might be hereditary, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I think to be a parent is to feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we can't in any way think that if, we're good, if we are responsible for our children, that if something happens to them, then somehow we had something to do with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's very normal for us to do that. I've heard some people say that our feelings of guilt are even one of the ways that we stay connected to our child mm-hmm. or to whomever we've lost, that this, these feelings of guilt are in some ways a, an indicator of the connection and the intensity of the relationship. So again, we want to say to our audience out there, if you're feeling some guilt about, about it, it's a perfectly normal aspect. I remember feeling guilty that I didn't let my son take my car instead of having his cousin take his car, you know, and you, you just yeah. find all these ways. I think also from... I've had a thought that it's a way that we could think our way to control our world. Yes, it gives us the illusion that somehow there was some cause and effect here that we can point to. Right. Uh, One of the ways that the guilt comes up for me is that I felt guilty, as have my other children from time to time, felt guilty that we are so healthy and Cindy's not. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a survivor's guilt, almost. That reminds me of, I've heard you say, Heidi, before that you felt guilty that you were... The one, I mean, that you guys were living when the only boy died. Right. I felt that the wrong child had died, and I felt guilty that the only boy had died. And I think, Janice, you made such a good point. I think sometimes we hold on to the guilt too long because it's a way of connecting. It's a way of staying connected to somebody that has died. I know that I held on to my guilt too long because it was a connection. Mm-hmm. And um, now I'm realizing there's adaptive ways to stay connected, and I, I've, I've been able to let go of the guilt and still stay connected to Scott in other ways. I'm sure that in over time people find incredibly interesting ways to do that, I think. And perhaps it's true that we, we let go of our guilt a little bit at a time as we have something else to substitute for it. Oh, I like and that thought. That kind I of gets into that continuing bonds thing. It really mm-hmm. does. It, mm-hmm. it really does. And I, I have this little little verse that I like to apply. You know how when someone gets married we say that they should wear something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue. Mm-hmm. And um, I think of that in relation to rituals that would recognize uh, a death, a loss of someone. Because when you start putting the rituals together, and here we are putting them together for Halloween, for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, for, for Hanukkah, for, you know, we have huge holidays coming up, probably one of the most difficult times of the year. And as we figure out what we're going to do and how we're going to put together rituals that will help us concretize what's really happened, help us limp through the holiday, as it were, that if we think about something old, that would mean let's do something we've always done. Uh, Something new would mean let's have a ritual that let's do something different this time. I have some families who've gone off to Mexico or they've taken the whole family to some different place to celebrate. Something borrowed, um, I think something borrowed could be uh, something from family history uh, where people have gotten through tough times before, whatever might remind them of that. 
And then obviously something blue, I want to say not color, but in the sense of feeling blue, that to give ourselves permission, that builds into the holiday time to any time is the time when it's, when we just say, you know what, it's all right to feel this miserable, and I'm going to just let myself do that mm-hmm. and not hold back. Uh-huh. And we can devise rituals that will help us to do that without. So giving ourselves permission at certain times to have those feelings and feel bad and, and feel the loss. I like to say, lean into it. <laughs> Let it wash over us. Yep, that's good. But, however, audience, uh, Heidi, I want you to get to your sibling point of view about the holidays, too. Lean into it, but compartmentalize right. it. Right. Lean into yeah. it and take certain time, set certain time aside, and then for the rest of the day, we need to embrace our families and give our kids the holidays that they're expecting and give our grandkids the holidays that they're expecting. Yeah. I like that model that um, that the... Uh, the dual process model that maybe mm-hmm. uh, Sproba and yep. Pink Shoot put together because that suggests that we, we oscillate or we move back and forth from doing things that are future-oriented and doing things that are really having to do with our loss where we can just let ourselves wallow in how, you know, just wallow, yeah. and I mean that positively, mm-hmm. uh, wallow in what's happened to us. Yeah, know, that compartmentalizing. But I want to say to our folks out there who are really newly bereaved, just get through it this year. And... Remember, it's only one day and uh, or, you know, certain days and let people help you and, you know, it, the first year is, you know, getting through. You know, I don't know if you uh, both have seen this in, in your own work, but one of the things I've noticed is that the two weeks prior to an anniversary date or mm-hmm. to a holiday seem to be more difficult for some people than the anniversary mm-hmm. day itself. Absolutely. How could I feel this bad already? I mean, it's two weeks away. That anticipation is incredible. Yes. I, I know with the 9-11 families, because it's such a public loss, their anxiety begins in August, mm-hmm. and it's very overwhelming. And after, on the 12th of September, there's such a sense of relief because it's over. But like you said, on September 11th, the anniversary is usually not as bad as they had anticipated. Yes. Especially the anticipation. Especially, yeah, especially Gloria, if they've, uh, I mean, Heidi, if they've planned for it. Right. You know, I want to say something about normal. May I say something about normal? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, this is not my saying. We love normal. I'd like to think that I that I invented this, but I'm not sure that I did. But I always, my audiences always like it. It's when I say normal, the only thing we really know about normal is it's a setting on the dryer. <laughs> oh, that's good. It's setting on the dryer. That's a perfect thing. Very and that kind of gets us into what I promised we'd talk about before break, which is... Do people need therapy? How do they know? You know, what are your thoughts on therapy for grief? Well, I don't think that anyone would would not benefit from having someone that would listen to them. And I think that goes all the way from someone, a, a confidant, a friend. I think this, that that's what goes on in compassionate friends meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, it, people are able to sit there and hear other other folks who've lost children and to know you know, just to be able to tell their story, even to listen to other stories until they're ready uh, to tell them. And that, while well, I wouldn't call it therapy, is certainly therapeutic. Well, mm-hmm. it, uh, there was a, a quote from uh, Berger and Luckman, <clears throat> who wrote, I guess, a book in 1966. I like this comment that you put in your book. Talking through various elements of experience allocates them to a definite place in the real world. 
I think that's so interesting because if we talk about it, it's in the here and now. It's in the real world. It's not thinking about it in the past. It's thinking about how how I'm doing with it now. I, I, brings it brings it right brings it right in right into today. Yeah, because I can't. You know, I can't. Well, honey, and I know that talking about it is helpful to people, and I and maybe not to everyone. I don't know. I don't want to generalize on that whole thing. I'm not you sure. Know, Bill Warden. Uh, Bill Warden made a point in his uh, books on how to do grief counseling and grief therapy that uh, that grief counseling is doing work around grief that, that is not complicated by other mental illnesses or terribly serious family patterns that were not good prior to the loss. Right. I don't like the word dysfunctional particularly because I think it labels families in a way that's not helpful. Well, my thought is that all families function. <laughs> they function in different ways. <laughs> and other right. people want to label right. them dysfunctional, they can. That's right. depends on the culture, doesn't it? Yeah, it surely um, does. But uh, I think um, just that your family was prior. I mean, if, if you, I mean, actually, you know, I do have a lot of families that over time tell me that they feel like they're closer because of the loss. I think our family is. Do you, Heidi? Well, I don't know because I don't know what we'd look like if Scott was still here. This is the right life and not any other, right? <laughs> yes, I'm very yeah. close yeah. to my siblings yeah. and I so appreciate them. And as all of you know, I have, I, it was very important for me to give my son a sibling because I have loved the sibling relationship, so I feel very fortunate. And how do you adopt it? Janice probably doesn't know that, and a yeah, lot of our audience doesn't. I adopted yeah. my second daughter because I wanted my son to have a child, a, a sibling, and it's even wonderful. One, there's one growth right there. Out of, so out of something terrible comes something. Absolutely. And, you know, that that's a good one because, you know, right now we have a pretty strong movement, as you know, within, or I don't know if you'd call it a movement, but a lot of interest in post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. Yep. Calhoun, yes, we had them on our show. They did a wonderful show with us. And, um, that's, I think that it's true. I think it's always been true that mm-hmm. hardship sometimes can, can help people to get places they wouldn't have gotten any other way to help other people. I mean, I just think about how sensitized both of you are because of the loss of Scott. And not everyone does such constructive things with their losses as, as you have. But well, and you're not afraid to to approach people that have had a loss and to enter their world because you've been there. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And I, I think the risk for us as, as counselors and as therapists is that sometimes I think, and clergy as well, sometimes people get told someday you'll be stronger for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, that there will be, there's even Bible verses that talk about everything will work out for, for good. And, and while there might be a way that people eventually realize that, come to that. I don't find it particularly helpful uh, to people to talk about that very much in the beginning. It's far much more important, I think, to watch the little signs of growth or the little ways that people begin to find something positive in what's happening or can say, you know, I really do feel closer to my sister than I ever did before. Yeah, you have to find it yourself. You know, there was an article in the New York Times Magazine section last year that said you can die of a broken heart. And talked about a case where, you know, a, a 
a person died and the and the other person died. And so not for everyone is not going to be the same. I mean, for some people, maybe maybe they will be depressed forever. I don't know. People tell me, well, I know somebody who never got over it. I can't tell you how many people come up with somebody and say, oh, I know somebody who never got over it. But maybe they maybe they didn't get over it. Maybe it defines who they are, and maybe that's the way they connect. Who knows? And, and you know, I don't think I've ever gotten over the death of Scott, but I've learned to live with it, and I've learned to have a wonderful existence. Oh, give us your defining thing, Heidi. I really I, like I always, that. I always tell parents, and this is the way I've lived my life, my, the death of Scott defined my life. It did not destroy my life. That's nice. That's very good. That's mm-hmm. good. You know, um, the whole notion that, Having an experience like that doesn't doesn't take away doesn't take away your future, but I think it requires that we braid or in some ways weave into our future things about the person that we lost. And then right. to not do that is to lose, I think, some richness in our lives as, as we go forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. It doesn't take away our future. I think that, and I also think that's important for parents to realize where their kids have, um, there's been a family loss and a parent or whatever, and it, it, it's really, you're so worried, the remaining parents so worried about the children that it doesn't take away their future. I mean, you know, you see Heidi, I, I love her example, you know, on the show, that it hasn't taken away her future. And in so, some ways, like, so we, like uh, we did on the post-traumatic growth, I mean, in some ways, and like Janice has said, children that have been through adversity and have been through death early on are more empathic oftentimes, they're more mature, they know how to, you know, deal with adversity in their lives. I mean, they, they get amazing coping skills that other kids may not have. And that occurs especially if they have people around them who understand and are able to, you know, able to be there for them and help them to convert the, the negative feelings and the pain into something or to understand it and then to, to channel it into good, into good mm-hmm. things as opposed to the opposite. Well, we've got a caller, Mary from Minnesota. Hi, Mary. Hi. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very did, good program. Oh, thanks. Did you have a question or comment for us? I did. Um, for any of you to answer, um, I my sister is dealing with cancer, and she has ovarian cancer, and, and we've been very fortunate as a family um, to have her with us for so long. Um, she has managed to outlive the statistics. <laughs> Recently, she has had a setback. Um, her cancer is growing again, and this is happening a lot with our family where um, her cancer starts growing and things look kind of bad for a while, and then they get better. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that happens when um, uh, the cancer is in a not good place like now where it's growing again um, is that my sister will sometimes talk about um you know, her death and what will happen afterwards, you know, what the family will do and how we'll help to take care of her grieving husband that she would leave behind if she died and, and a stepchild. And um, it's hard for some of us, myself included, to know what to say because she's here with us now and we're we're loving her and living with her and sharing her life. And we want to support her as she thinks about, you know, the, poss- the very real possibility of her death. Um, as we all do, but also just kind of how to how to deal with that a little bit. You know, well, what do you say? <laughs> Will you take care of my husband for me after after I'm gone? You know, it's I don't know how do you how do you support and yet still say, hey, but let's stay in the moment because you're here now. Mm-hmm. Anybody, uh, you know? Janice, you want to take that? Yeah, that's a that's a sibling loss for sure, and I, I 
sounds as if there's been quite a long course to, to this. A couple of things that I think of. One is that I believe it always helps when we're, we're with anyone who, particularly a family member, just to say, um, how can I help? What would help? And at the same time, to be able to find people outside of the family where we can really be open, 100% open about our fears and our doubts, and just so that we're not trying to get that kind of support from within the family, but to recognize that it's difficult, it's difficult from the moment of diagnosis, and the idea that it gets better and gets worse and gets better and gets worse doesn't make it, doesn't make it any easier. Mm-mm, difficult. Heidi, have you got any thoughts as a sibling? I was just thinking um, to the caller. I don't remember your name. What was your name? Mary. Mary. Mary, what you were saying out loud as you were giving us the scenario, like I want to support her and I want to be there for her, but at the same time I want to live in the present, and when she's saying these things I don't really know what to do because she's talking about her future to be or her death, being saying those words to her, saying, okay, this is the situation I'm in. I want to be there for you. And be hopeful and be in the present and live in the moment, but you're talking about your funeral and that's difficult. And uh, I don't know if she'd be open to hearing that, but see what she says. And and then, like Janice said, say to her, how can I be helpful? Is it helpful for you to talk about these things? Because for me, I'm wanting to live in the present and see uh-huh. what she does. You're such uh-huh. an open person, it sounds like. Yeah, I think she would be open to that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and discussing it with her a lot, discussing these issues with her. Yeah. I love that, Heidi. Well, Mary, um, try that and give us a, a little email and tell us how it goes through the grief pod. I will. We'd Maybe love to hear her about listen it. to the show, this part of the show. Yeah, have thank her you. listen to the whole show. Yeah. Take yeah, the computer. Yeah, <laughs> listen, you. thank you so much for calling in, and uh, good luck. And I can and, understand uh, why you're holding on to hope. Yeah, oh, thank for you. sure. Thank Nobody you. wants you to give that up. That's right. Okay. Thanks. Take care. Take care. Okay, well, we've just got a few more minutes, and I wanted to um, have Janice talk a little bit about her CDs and our, the books on the web, and you can get it, uh, I believe, through Amazon. And um, also, she wanted to talk a little bit about Paul, Paul Rosenblatt's book, and then she's got, what, uh, four tips for us? So go for it, Janice. Sure. Well, I just wanted to mention, and anyone that's interested in reading some excellent narrative and some excellent insight about um, parental grief, could read uh, one, or, one or the other or both of these two books. One is called Parent Grief, and the other one is called Help Your Marriage Survive the Death of a Child. And these are both by Paul Rosenblatt, R-O-S-E-N-E-L-A-T-T. And we'll see if we can get Paul on the show. Yeah, good. That would be a good idea. He'd be excellent, and uh, he can get his books through Amazon. Great. Then I have put together, and it's on my website, and my website is there on your website, <laughs> Uh, three or four, as I see them now, I think there are five very quick little uh, tips for how to um, cope with loss or how to grieve in a healthy way. And these are developed um, on my website. And what it actually says is click here to see a teaching module. And uh, probably will change that to click here to, to hear five tips on healthy grief. But number one, uh, to name what has been lost. And I think you mentioned that earlier, how good it is to just say, what, right? Right now, what is it that I've lost and to be open about it? To attach meaning to the loss. Um, to say, what does this death mean to me? And that may not be positive. It might be a negative meaning. This is a death that should not have happened. This person should, my sister should never have died. My brother should never have died. That is also a meaning, and uh, it's important to acknowledge it as that. To use social support. I worry very much about clients who 
do not have a community. I think of them as bicycles on the freeway. Right. Um, to use family rituals, uh, to, we talked a bit about that, something old, mm-hmm. something new, something borrowed, and something blue. And then the final one that I've noted is the very powerful importance of personal care. We talked about diet and exercise and uh, even getting full-spectrum light. Those are just simple things that anybody can do, um, and particularly in those early years. Well, that's great. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful show, and as Heidi and I feel that it's so important to bring the experts of grief and loss together on our show so that they can help us all out with the issues that we're having, and we uh, wish you all, all of our audience, the very best during the holidays, and we hope that you will take very good care of yourself, and thank you so much, Janice and Nidu, for being on the show. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.